Hi, I'm Michael from Pittsburgh. This is Laurel from Oakland. Hey, I'm Allison from Cincinnati. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the filmmaker and author Rudolf Herzog. His new book is called Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany. It's an exploration of humor in Germany before, during, and immediately after the Nazi years, including uh, both the humor of the Nazis, of their subjects, and of their targets. Um, Rudolf, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. So, what did you know about humor in Germany before you started to investigate the subject, before you made it a you know, a, a target of your scholarship? Uh, well, years ago, um, my great aunt, who was a bit of a messy, um, she started collecting stuff in the war because things were rationed and she never stopped. So in the end, her house was full of mess. And uh, basically when she was elderly and couldn't live alone anymore and moved away, uh, my uncle cleared out the house and he found all sorts of weird things in the mess like a jam jar dated 1940, <laughs> unopened. Um, but he also found like two or three sheets of paper with printed up jokes dated like 1939 or 1940. And uh, they were sort of anti-Nazi jokes, you know, some stuff I think about the miracle weapon. You know, the Nazi propaganda was into this at the end of the war, that there was some sort of miraculous weapon that could turn the war. And uh, there were, of course, the V1 and V2 uh, rockets, but there was also V3, according to this, uh, which is a, a submarine with a rubber coating, which could erase England by going around. <laughs> and there was also a 500-man tank, but uh, with only one man inside, 499 pushing. <laughs> and then there was the v V1000, which is a white rag, which you wave when the Red Army approaches. So this kind of stuff. And... I sort of really wondered, I mean, did she write this? Um, was she some sort of secret resistance fighter or something? And then I kind of forgot about it. And later on, uh, I made a film about the subject because it sort of popped up in a conversation with the broadcaster. And then the book evolved out of that project. You grew up in Germany, in Berlin. What do you think Germans know about this subject because there were books of jokes published after um, the war. How do Germans who came up after this era think of the humor of that time? Well, first of all, Germans of a certain generation would have known about this. As you said, the first books that came out after the war were collections of anti-Nazi jokes so these were very, very widespread jokes indeed, a lot of people told them. And uh, so um, my grandparents' generation all knew about this. But um, I would say that um, people of my generation wouldn't really know about it. What was humor like in Germany during the Weimar years before the Nazis took control? 
Well, it was characterized by a lot of Jewish comedians. It was sort of the heyday of Jewish comedy. And there were some very good performers like uh, Kurt Geron or Otto Weiburg, who were basically most of them in Berlin. And of course, that all disappeared um, in the course of, uh, you know, the, the on, on coming of the Third Reich. They were exiled and some of them were killed in the uh, in the camps. So, um, yes, and after that, uh, you did have very few comedians who were outspoken against the Nazis. But of course, it had to be kind of between the lines. There was, for instance, there was Werner Fink, who was a Berlin comedian. Um, and one of the things he did in his act um, in 1934, so after the Germans came to power, was that a, his sidekick would come up on the stage with with a picture, but with a back to the audience. And people sort of guessed that it was Hitler on the picture. And uh, he'd stumble. And then Fink would say, oh, don't topple him, don't topple him. And people would <laughs> roar with laughter. But, um, of course, uh, sometime they lost patience with him. And they put him in a camp in 1935. And only through lucky uh, wheeling and dealing, he actually managed to get out again in the united states the the comedy of the 1920s and 30s was um in large part informed by uh people who had come out of vaudeville who'd come out of touring theater and those people were often doing ethnic humor um whether they were you know the marx brothers are doing broad ethnic caricatures um, that, you know, they've taken a little bit of the ethnicity out of as it translated to film, but, you know, they're doing Italian guy, Jewish guy, etc. cetera. Um, what, was, what were the themes of, of, of this humor that uh, was being pro- performed in cabarets and so on in the 20s? And how did those, how were those things changed when the political climate started to change? Well, it was mostly light comedy. And of course, America is a country of immigrants, so you do get these various flavors. When I say the Jews in Germany, I of course mean uh, Jewish Germans. I mean, they were totally assimilated. Many of them had fought in the World War One, And so there's not this kind of, the kind of uh, differentiation you would see. Um, humor became more politicized. Uh, after the um, Nazis came to power, not by the performers, but by the populace. Um, They looked at their leadership, and uh, there were a couple of fault lines that were immediately clear. For instance, these people didn't look like Aryans at all. I mean, the the leadership. (laughs) And uh, there were lots of jokes about, you know, the real Aryan should be blonde like Hitler, and (laughs) as thin as Goering, who was really fat, and, you know, as handsome and tall as Goebbels, and these kind of things. Um, but sort of in the beginning, people like to point out things they felt uncomfortable with, also like the Hitler salute. This is this is something that was introduced, and it's rather ridiculous. And uh, you uh, you had to do it if you went into a public building. You had to do it, and people just didn't feel comfortable with it. And they made lots of jokes about that, like um, uh, Hitler goes to uh, visit a lunatic asylum, and the, the lunatics line up, and they do the salute. And he walks past the line, and all of a sudden, there's one man at the end of the line who's not saluting. And he says, hey, what, what, what are you doing there? You're not saluting. Are you crazy? And he says, no, 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 no. I'm the orderly. I'm not one of the madmen. <laughs> so um, anyway, people just didn't feel comfortable with that. But these aren't really uh, hurtful jokes. That came much later. 
I want to get to later soon, but uh, tell me a little bit about how the uh, changes in first attitudes, then policies towards Jews changed the world of professional entertainers and comedians during the 1930s. Well, one of the absurdities was that, uh, of course, uh, Jews almost immediately, a lot of them went into exile and many of them were forced into exile. And um, there's a, there's a great joke about Jews going into exile in Africa that you write in the book. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorites. I'm, I hope I can tell it well. But it's it's uh, Levi and Herschel, both Jewish, are um, in in the jungle in, in in the Congo, and they're both wearing these kind of tropical helmets and they're they're holding guns. All right, so they bump into each other and they haven't seen each other for a long time. Is it? My goodness, Herschel, it's, it's incredible to see you here. What have you been up to? He says, well, I've been hunting for tigers in India, and now I'm going after crocodiles here. And what about you? And he says, um, well, I had a snake farm in Sudan, and now I'm going after elephants. He says, well, um, that's interesting, but listen, what, what happened to our friend Bloom? And then the other one says, ah, yeah, well, he became an adventurer. He stayed in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, but also sad. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. It's all you can do, as they say, all you can do is laugh. Yeah, I suppose so. I think that's that's how I interpret much of uh, Jewish humor, is that it's it's just a way to kind of deal with the, the, uh, the horrendous, these horrendous things that were happening. I mean, unfathomably awful things. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the show is the filmmaker and writer Rudolf Herzog. His new book is called Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany. What did you expect to find in the humor of the, um, the late 1930s and early 1940s among the non-Jewish German population? And how did what you find compare to what you expected? I expected, what did I expect to find? I expected to find... Um something that was subversive. And I think a lot of these jokes appear to be subversive, but they really didn't subvert anyone. Like, for instance, uh, Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels out on sea, and there's a big storm, and their boat sinks. Who's saved? Answer Germany. So these kind of things. But the city where I'm from, Berlin, um, the Red Army had to basically go from one house to the next. They had to fight house by house. Yet in these houses where the people were telling all these jokes, I mean, it was a mass phenomenon. So it just shows you that it didn't subvert people in the way that it would actually take fear away from them to go out and actually um, try to kill Hitler or whatever. I mean, there, there seems like there's almost an assumption that if there is humor, that humor is subversive. But you, you write in the book that... Um, that especially before things turned dark, but even after they turned dark, it was it was a humor of fondness and and to the extent that any of the humor had a point, it was jokes that were about dehumanizing the people who were being turned into the enemy. Yes, of course, there were lots of anti-Semitic jokes. These things existed. And uh, the Nazis even went so far as to um, as to make an anti-Semitic comedy in 1939, Robert und Bertram, the only anti-Semitic comedy to come out of the Third Reich. 
basically it's a story set in the 19th century. It's, I think, two young hobos try to uh, save a young girl. One of them's in love with her, and she's sort of in the fangs of this Jew. And uh, we basically go through all the nasty anti-Semitic uh, kind of cliches you could imagine in this film. And... Um, it's served up in a way that is kind of light comedy and you don't really expect it. So um, it's a very uh, a diabolical way of using humor, basically because because people don't expect it and it's funneled into their head, the poison. And um, it's probably no coincidence that it came out the same year as the other anti-Semitic films like The Eternal Jew and so on. So um, it it sort of helped to pave the way for the final solution in the way that people just didn't care about the Jews anymore because of what they had seen. One of the, um, as, as you described it, essentially fictions of the post-World War II era in Germany was that ordinary citizens didn't know what was going on in the concentration camps. And... Um, in in your research about your research in about humor seems to have sort of given the lie to that that assertion yeah i mean as i said these jokes were very very widespread and the ca- uh, the camps come up in the jokes i mean there's for instance one where uh, two men meet in the street and one says to the other oh my goodness i'm i'm so happy to see you i thought you were in a camp and i said well i'm out and uh, the other man says, well, how was it? And he says, well, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, we had we had um, a coffee in the morning. They served us uh, eggs. Um, we, we did some sport. Uh, there was an elaborate lunch. And in the evening, we watched movies. The man says, my, my goodness, I mean, that's, that's incredible. You know, the other day I met Meyer, and he told me a completely different story. The other man says, yeah, well, but he's been taken back in again, hasn't he? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a sinister joke because in a way, you obviously, you see that not only did people know that the camps existed, but it's quite clear from the joke that the man has been worked into submission and that people were being, you know, tortured there and uh, couldn't get out anymore. So, um, and there were many of these jokes and they were widespread, so... Yeah, the generation of my grandparents claimed that they didn't know anything about this, and uh, it's quite obviously not true. Did you talk to anyone who was in camps about the humor that was going on there in that, you know, just absolute darkest of places? Yes, I spoke to Coco Schumann, who was in the notorious Auschwitz band, so he was forced to play while the uh, people were sent to the um, to the cha- gas chamber. And uh, he confirmed what other sources confirmed, that there was a lot of humor in the camps. That's the way a lot of Jews try to uh, cope with the situation. Um, in fact, there's a story about, uh, I think, one fairly well-known German actor whose father, I believe, died in, in Auschwitz. And um, someone who was there uh, claimed that when he entered the gas chamber, he said, well, after you, Mr. Levy, or whatever, he kind of... I mean, that's almost the darkest kind of joke you could possibly make in that situation. But on the other hand, what are you supposed to say? I mean, what's, how are you supposed to respond to something like that? And um, uh, it's quite resonant. And some of the Jewish humor, of course, is very, very dark, like um, 
uh, two men are supposed to, uh, are to be executed and they're supposed to be shot. And then the executioner comes up to them and says, well, you, you're actually going to be hung after all. And then one nudges the other and says, hey, look, they don't even have bullets anymore. <laughs> and of course, that's a, it's a dark joke and it's, it's in a way funny, but you kind of want to cry at the same time. And what's, what's good about it, I think, is that uh, on the one hand, there's no hope for these two protagonists because they'll die. But there's hope for the Jewish people because Hitler's mad plan isn't working out and he doesn't have any bullets anymore. So this way of kind of making yourself hope in the spite, uh, feel hope in, sp in spite of all these horrors is quite amazing. What do you see as the essential roles of the humor that you learned about um, during this time, what do you what do you see the what do you see those roles as having been? Well, in in the case of the uh, humor of the Jews or the German Jews, uh, I think it's a it's a way of coping with the horrors. In the case of the jokes I've uh, I came across that Gentiles were were telling, I think it's it's to a large extent uh, a way of venting frustrations about what was happening. In the beginning, it was more about exposing fault lines or, you know, uh, you were a little bit angry that some uh, brown shirts took your job away and stuff like that. And jokes were made about that. But when the wars turned sour, people were angry and worried about that. So it was a way of venting these, uh, uh, these frustrations. And in a way that you could even argue that it stabilized the regime. Because once you've kind of shrugged it off with a joke, you uh, didn't have to pick up a gun and go after Hitler. It feels like especially those those lighthearted jokes about the leadership are a way, feel like a way of... Um, of disengaging, of, of engaging s small things so that you don't have to engage the big things. Yeah. Um, for instance, there are very few jokes, if any, about Himmler. And I think that's quite interesting because they feared him and um, he was part of all the stuff they didn't really want to know about. You see, knowing has to do with wanting to know. If you don't want to know something, you'll never know it. So I think that's quite important because the information about the Holocaust and what was happening was there. It could be accessed at least to some extent. There are also jokes to prove this. In Amsterdam, there was a Jewish joke going around about uh, the gas. I mean, there was uh, Aschau and Kohn were the heads of the Jewish council. And uh, they were seen as collaborators with the Germans. So there was a joke about the Germans coming to them and saying, well, you know, the Amsterdam Jews are going to be sent to the East to be gassed. And then they say, well, are you uh, taking care of the gas or should we supply it? So, so people knew about the gas. They could have known about it, but they didn't want to know. We've got more with Rudolf Herzog after a break. He's the author of Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. 
and by VG Kids, printers of t-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at VGKids.com. The Sound of Young America is a proud sponsor of Sketchfest NYC in New York City at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, June 8th through 11th. You can catch some of the best sketch comedy in the country, including past Sound of Young America guests, The Whitest Kids You Know, folks from Marvel Comics, and the legendary Rejection Show. You can find more information about Sketchfest NYC online at sketchfestnyc.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rudolf Herzog. He's a writer and filmmaker and the author of Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany. I don't know if you've ever seen this episode of um, Faulty Towers where uh, John Cleese as Basil Faulty is, is an innkeeper. And um, I mean, he's the premise of this program is that he's a horrible, horrible innkeeper. But um, he uh, he has guests who are German. And it's essentially a farce where the premise is that he is obsessed with not bringing up World War II. And, uh, of course, just makes everything horrible at every turn. But I thought that while that is uh, obviously a British television program, it's about something that's really significant in the aftermath of World War II, which is that... um, what it's about is how can you possibly move on after something that is that is so as horrible as that yeah i have actually seen that it's very funny um well after the war um in the 50s people try to get on with their lives and they try to ignore what had happened and uh that was the stance and historians of the 1950s the german ones um, their kind of take on it was that Hitler was kind of like a demon and that he had hypnotized the Germans to do all these things using propaganda and all these very modern tools. But, um, uh, of course, if you look at the jokes and, uh, for instance, Goebbels, who was the minister of propaganda, people were saying, well, his broadcasts are like Clubfoot's fairy tales, you know, these kind of jokes. You see that people did see through the propaganda and that they weren't hypnotized at all. And, of course, it's very practical to call yourself someone who was hypnotized because the person who's hypnotized is not really responsible for what he does. It's the hypnotist. Uh, so that's what you really want. But, of course, that's a way of bending uh, truth. And um, uh, if you look at the humor, you see that that's just not the case. You spent more now more than five years with this uh, subject. Um, how has immersing yourself in something uh, so difficult for so long changed you? Um, well, it was awful. I hated it in many ways. Yes, because it's like, you know, you have to look into the abyss. You have to kind of, you, you, you can't blink, you know. And of course, it sounds interesting in humor and stuff, and it is, but you also have to look the horrors in the face of what happened. And they're worse than, you know, anything you could ever imagine. I mean, it's just just terrific. And uh, I think I've done my part in a way. And um, um, I'm happy it's out the book. And it's great. But I'm also happy that, you know, I can put it on a shelf and (laughs) not forget about it, but um, um, turn to other things. 
maybe a documentary about uh, circus acts or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You're you are a professional magician, so maybe something about magic. Yes, yeah, I, I was actually a, a professional magician for a f- couple of years. Yeah, a, a couple uh, a year or two ago, I interviewed the uh, British satirist Chris Morris about his film Four Lions, which was a um, uh, farce about a terror cell operating, uh, an English terror cell operating in England, um, uh, an English Muslim terror cell. And it came from his, his experience, his, his uh, years of researching the subject out of his own personal interest and reading about sorted, sort of clownish doofy behavior on the part of terrorists and feeling like he wanted to uh, portray them to satirize them. And I got the most vehement letter I've ever gotten. I give out my email address on at the end of the show. I got the most vehement letter at the end of the show I've ever gotten um, from a guy who simply felt that um, he, he felt two things that this was not necessarily a suitable subject for a comedic film. And also that this film was described by, I think uh, one of the programmers of Sundance on the show as having uh, being particularly powerful because it humanized its subjects. Um, and I wonder how, and that was a positive thing in that Sundance guy's opinion and a positive thing in Chris Morris's opinion. But um, the guy who wrote to me said, uh, you know, nothing can be good that humanizes uh, uh, a monster like a terrorist. And I wonder how your perspective on humor about something horrible, um, both the Hitler and, and the Third Reich specifically, and more generally about the most horrible things there are and the most horrible people there are, how that's been informed by having spent this these years doing this research. Well, of course, you could reverse the argument and say that the statue, the way they want it to be portrayed, is knocked down by humanizing someone. So you could actually reverse that and turn the argument around. So then the morality wouldn't be the question. Um, yeah, the terrorists. Um, well... I think uh, humor is a way of dealing with trauma to some extent. Um, you see countless examples of that from Simplicissimus, was, which was a, a, a manuscript, the first kind of German novel which came out of, uh, after the uh, 30-year war, and where basically uh, whole populations were wiped out. I mean, in this war, uh, southern Germany was depopulated. And the first thing that comes out afterwards is is about a young man who kind of stumbles through the war and he's like a fool and all sorts of weird and funny things happen. And um, it's just a sort of way of dealing with these things. Uh, you see that, for instance, in Forrest Gump, a similar, very similar figure, uh, which the film goes through all the American trauma of, uh, I don't know, AIDS, uh, the Vietnam War, the 60s, uprising and so on, but seen through the eyes of a fool. So... I don't know. It just uh, it just depends uh, on um, you know it's a, it's a coping mes- mechanism, I think. And sometimes, if something's too close to the events, it just uh, uh, it it just does seem inappropriate to people. Um, so that's that's the, that's why you're getting these kind of responses. Uh, for example, um, uh, years ago, 
uh, after September 11th, um, I, I used to be the assistant of Philippe Petit, who was a tightrope walk, and he did the walk between the World Trade Center. And uh, I, went to, um, I went to Ground Zero with him and talked to him on camera about what he had done, and I made a little film about it, and I wanted to expand on that, and it was impossible to raise money for it because people just couldn't see why one would make such a film at such a point in time. And many, many years later, Man on Wire came out on the same subject, and it was a huge success. But, you know, the timing was much better. People um, sort of saw that it was a way, a poetic way of tr treating with the trauma. Uh, that just wasn't possible in the, in the months afterwards. It was a miscalculation on my part. Did people require this kind of distance, whether it's the distance of time, the distance of, you know... Uh uh, literal physical distance, what, what, whatever that distance is, they need something. Yes, if you look at The Great Dictator, which um, incidentally, I mean, it came out in 1940. And um, it, of course, it didn't come to Germany. Uh, there was actually one copy which was taken out by the Reich Chancellery, so Hitler may have seen it. But apart from that, of course, no one saw it. There were rumors about it, but no one saw it. But then after the war, um, it took until the 50s, I believe even the late 50s, until it came out in Germany. And I read a review about the film, and a German review, and the reviewer said, uh, the film is fantastic, uh, Chaplin's a genius, but we're not ready for this. So it was, that's, I think, quite resonant. Well, Rudolf, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America. It's a great pleasure. Rudolf Herzog's new book is called Dead Funny, Humor in Hitler's Germany. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White in Chicago. Special thanks to Paul Ruest, who engineered our interview with John Ronson at the Argo Studio in New York City. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. If you want to download this show or any of our past interviews, you can do it for free at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. Just search for The Sound of Young America. While you're at MaximumFun.org, I encourage you to check out all of our other programs like the comedy advice show, My Brother, My Brother and Me, the comedy judge program, Judge John Hodgman, and my own comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. They're all at MaximumFun.org and they're all absolutely free. That's about it for us this time. See you next week on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.